Well, if you ever have the chance to visit the Smithsonian His Museum of Natural History in D.C., there you'll see one of the largest collections of dinosaur fossils almost anywhere in the world. And that huge collection is in part because of two men, two paleontologists from the late 1800s named Edward Cope and Othniel Marsh. These two men were responsible for discovering and categorizing dozens of dinosaur fossils in different species. However, these two men, their careers were not exactly congenial. These were a fierce rivalry between these two men existed from an early time. And it really, it resulted from their strong personalities and their wide difference of opinion. And they did become bitter rivals, and I mean bitter rivals. Each man was determined to outperform the other, discovering more species of dinosaurs, always trying to find bigger and better fossils. Their rivalry eventually became known as the Bone Wars, each one trying to one-up the other. The first strike really came when Mr. Marsh, who himself kind of came from a, a rougher background, Cope instead came from a very privileged family. But Marsh discovered that Mr. Cope had a dig site in which he was uncovering fossils. Well, Marsh had the brilliant idea of paying off some of the workers to instead of deliver those fossils to Cope, who owned the dig site, they would turn them over to him instead, essentially stealing Mr. Cope's work. He was, of course, infuriated by this. In response, he moved his dig sites west out into Colorado and Wyoming, which is areas that Marsh considered to be his stomping grounds. And so the war was on, and back and forth it went. They attacked each other viciously in the academic and scientific journals of the day. Each time one would publish an article about his, or her, uh, his findings, they would lambast him with a counter-article. Every time it went back and forth. One notable example, Edward Cope discovered an aquatic dinosaur, and he put forth his findings in a journal. Mr. Marsh looked at his findings, observed the fossils that he had discovered, and realized that he had put the skull, the head of the dinosaur, on the wrong end. He had it on the tail instead of the neck. And he mercilessly went after him about it. In fact, mocked him ceaselessly for the rest of his life about that particular error. Well, the Bone Wars were on. It got so bad that both men, after excavating a dig site, would dynamite the entire dig site so that the other person couldn't come along and find any fossils after them. They hired thugs to go out and spy out the other guy's dig site and steal any fossils they could to bring back to them. Back and forth it went. For decades, these two men were at each other's throats. Eventually, Edward Cope got Mr. Marsh fired from his job with the U.S. Geological Survey. In turn, both men ended up basically destitute, their academic reputation tarnished, and had virtually nothing to show for it besides some fossils. The last and probably pettiest of all came in 1897 when Edward Cope died. He wrote into his will that he wanted his brain removed from his body and weighed. And he challenged Marsh in his will to do the same, to see who had the bigger brain. Well, Marsh didn't comply, and I don't know if it's because he was the bigger man in the end or if he just didn't want to give Cope the satisfaction of him following. 
Nevertheless, this bitter rivalry set these two men as enemies against each other. And I use that, and I know it's an extreme example, but pettiness and selfish divisions are not all that rare. Now, it may be rare that they turn into the bone wars, but seeds of disunity and malice can often set two people at odds against one another. It even happens sometimes in the church, as I'm sure some of you may have even observed at times. You know, in wartime, there's occasionally moments where soldiers, because of confusion, fire at each other. They call it friendly fire. Well, it's kind of an oxymoron of a statement when you think about it, friendly fire. But that's exactly what happens sometimes in the church. Here we are, we're on the same team, we're in the same church, we're serving the Lord, and yet we're firing at each other. And it can sometimes have bloody results. The Puritan theologian Thomas Brooks once wrote, For wolves to worry lambs is no wonder, but for lambs to worry one another, that is unnatural and monstrous. Lamb against lamb. It's sometimes how it is in the church. You know, somebody says something or does something that offends another, and that offense then is stored up in a person's heart and mind and breeds resentment and anger and malice. And many things can be the cause of this division between believers. A debt that's not repaid, a thoughtless word, an unintended slight, a simple disagreement, a difference of opinion, a strongly held preference, a mean-spirited attitude. All these and much more can set two believers against one another. Well, Paul addresses a very heated situation in the Philippian church in chapter 4, and he does it head on. In fact, it's a rare and somewhat unprecedented move for Paul here because he names both individuals by name in the chapter. Now, these New Testament letters were often read in a congregation. So you can imagine it probably created quite a stir. It'd be like if I started naming names of people in our church from the pulpit. It's like, whoa, wait a second. That's what happens here in Philippians. And it is rare, but I think it's important in this case that Paul is trying to head off something that could get a lot worse. The names of the two women in this case were Yodia and Syntyche. Now, Paul doesn't mention the nature of the problem. We'll say more about that in a minute. But this whole situation was probably known to the whole church. You can imagine. Sunday morning in Philippi, Yodia comes in and she sits all the way on this side of the auditorium. Syntyche comes in and sits all the way on this side. And the distance between them is marked. They won't even hardly look across the church for fear of looking the other one in the face. There was probably a tension in the air around this church, knowing that there's this standing conflict, this unresolved problem between these two women. Well, Paul seeks to address that here. He steps into this. I really think this is where Philippians has been driving to in a way. Now, I don't think that Paul has just been, his teaching is just setting up this scenario. I don't think his whole reason for writing was to confront these two ladies, but he's going to bring all the theology and all the teaching that we've studied so far in Philippians to bear on this, this circumstance. He's going to confront with the whole teaching of what he's been talking about, the, the mind of Christ, the humility and selflessness that we are called to express, the unity that we're to have in the body of Christ, all of that is going to be brought to bear on these 
this situation. And I'll, I'll also kind of add this for our benefit as well. Philippians is such a wonderful book. It's such an encouraging, helpful book in so many ways. But until we apply the theology, until we take the humility and learn to practice the mind of Christ, we've not really gotten to the bottom of what Philippians is about. Otherwise, we're just cataloging, oh, wow, what good theology, what wonderful teachings. But until it comes out and affects conflict in our lives, until it actually comes to bear on the difficulties and problems we face, I'm not sure we've quite got it yet. So the question we want to address this morning is, how do we get along in God's house? How do we get along with other believers when, when something comes along that divides us? Maybe a difference of opinion, maybe some issue that interrupts our relationships with one another. How do we get along? How do we move past that? Well, I think Philippians 4 is going to give us six principles here that I want to highlight in answering that question, how do we get along in God's house? Now, some of these are more obvious than others, but I think we'll see them all here in the text. So let's begin with number one. I think the first principle we need, to need for getting along in God's house is we need to come together. Come together. You know, division, anger, hurt feelings, all of that tends to drive people apart. I just pictured Yodi and Syntyche sitting on opposite sides of the church. Well, that's how it often goes. You have two people like Cope and Marsh who basically turn their backs on one another. Well, that doesn't really help resolve conflict, does it? When we push each other away, it doesn't help. Instead, we ought to come together. Maybe you remember this. If you have any siblings, brother or sister, my guess is there were times when you didn't always get along. You know, they take your toy, they, they're mean, they do something to you, uh, they got you in trouble, they irritate you, whatever it is. I have three brothers and a sister, so I understand. Uh, when that happens, oftentimes you don't want to look at them, you don't want to talk to them, you're upset with that brother or sister. What did your parents do? I imagine parents have lots of different ways of handling this. But I'm going to guess at some point they may have taken you and said, hey, I want you to look your brother in the face. Turn around and face your sister. I think that's getting at this principle. Come together. Look at what happens in Philippians 4, starting in verse 2. Paul writes, I implore Euodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. So Paul talks to these two ladies directly in this letter, addressing each one. And in fact, you notice he uses the word implore here twice. Once for one lady, once for the other. It's a, a strong and personal urge here. Do this. I implore you. And it's almost like Paul takes each of them individually and says, Listen, Yodia, I want you to turn and face your sister. Syntyche, I want you to turn and face your sister. Look at each other. I implore you. Now, obviously, there was some distance between these two ladies. Some disagreement had separated them. Now, Paul never says what it is. He never explains, here's the, here's the issue. And I think that silence tells us two things. First of all, it wasn't a doctrinal uh, problem. This was not a matter of theology or bad teaching. Because if it was, I don't think Paul would take it from a personal perspective. He would take it from a theological perspective. He would have answered the problems. So I don't think it's a matter of false teaching or anything like that. It was probably something much more personal. Secondly, I think the silence here tells us that the disagreement's not that important. 
It's not, well, it's not what's important to Paul, at least. Paul doesn't say, you know, okay, she's right, you're wrong. All right, let's try and solve this. Instead, his only concern is agree in the Lord. Come together. He's not worried so much about who wins the argument or who's right. It's a matter that it's probably some petty difference, something that certainly doesn't matter to Paul. All he's concerned about is that the conflict itself must come to an end. So this whole Philippian church was probably set on edge because of these two ladies. And he says, I implore you, I implore you to be of the same mind. Face each other. I found that no problem is really solved by hiding from one another. That if our response is, well, you've made me mad, I'm upset, I'm going this way. And instead of actually dealing with it, instead of actually coming together and talking about it, we isolate ourselves from one another. Or maybe we sometimes pretend the problem doesn't exist, which is no solution at all. You know, in Matthew 18, Jesus told his disciples, if you have something, if something comes up between you and your brother, go to them. Don't hide from them. Don't run from them. Certainly don't hate them. Go to them. And that's this principle. Come together. Resolve it. Look each other in the eye and work the problem out. Come together rather than push yourselves apart. Second principle, though, is is this. Think like Jesus. Think like Jesus. If we're going to resolve conflict, if we're going to get along in God's house, we need to have the mind of Christ. And that has been an important theme running all the way through Philippians. In fact, go back to chapter 2, starting in verse 4. It says, Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Then he says in the next verse, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So he gives the teaching up front in verses 1 to 4. He says, be humble. Look out for the interests of others. Don't put yourself first. Be unselfish. Then he says, because that's the mind of Christ. That's how Christ was. And the more we think like Christ, the more humble and the more agreeable we'll be in the Lord. And that's what Paul is going to now say to these two ladies in chapter 4. He says, I implore you, Euodia, and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Now, some versions will say, agree in the Lord. And that's the, the basic idea. But more literally, it's be of the same mind. Be of this mind. Think like Jesus. This, this term of thinking is used ten times in the book of Philippians. In this short little book, it's, it's a major idea here. Think the same thing. Now, we've said it before, I'll say it again. Thinking the same is not the same thing as uniformity. It doesn't mean we all just sort of recite the same answers and we all kind of rehearse thing like, things like robots, you know, where we, we don't really think for ourselves. We just follow the, the party line or follow the script. No, but it does mean having the same values. It means that we're sharing this mind of Christ, this thinking like Jesus. Now, for Yodi and Syntyche, chances are they were not of the same mind. In fact, they probably had their mind made up in very different directions. That's the thing about people. They can be pretty hard-headed, myself included. You know, we get our minds made up that this is the way it ought to be, this is how it should go, this is how it should be done, and this is why. 
And then somebody else comes along and says something different, and we can't get along because we're both have our minds made up in two very different directions. That was probably the case here. And you notice that Paul says in the verse, he says, be of the same mind, not just let me give you a, here's a truth I want you both to agree on. Instead he says, be of the same mind in the Lord. So that's what unites them, in the Lord, that they have this mind of Christ. Let me say this just up front and make sure everybody hears it. There's no problem that two believers, two mature believers, cannot work out in the Lord. Now, it may, it may require some repentance and it may require some forgiveness. It might require both sides to, to move a little bit. But there's no problem that two mature believers can't deal with because they are in the Lord. The real question should be, how much are we willing to think like Jesus? You know, are we willing to take on the role of a servant and put the interests of others above our own? Are, are we willing to not be the leader? Are we willing to submit to the wishes of others, even if it's not our idea, or maybe even what we would prefer? If we put on the mind of Christ, there's a good chance we can learn to get along, even when hurt and divisions run deep. But sometimes, sometimes we need a little help. There are times when believers, and I speak broadly of all of us, can be so stubborn that we refuse to come together. We refuse to get along. So it brings me to principle number three. We ought to welcome mediation. Welcome mediation. Sometimes it's helpful to have somebody in the middle who can kind of pull themselves out of the emotion of the moment, be able to look at the problem objectively, and to give wise and accurate counsel. Paul himself appears to have done this right here in the letter. You know, he's sort of a third party that's interjecting himself and saying, listen, there's a problem here. Let's get to the bottom of it. But not only that, he encourages others to help. Look at verse 3. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So Paul addresses a third party here and encourages them to help these women. Again, sometimes we need that third perspective, that voice from outside the conflict. Paul appeals to someone he calls the true companion. Now, there's a lot of theories about who this might be. After all, the word true companion is the Greek word syzygous, which might, some have suggested, might be a proper name, that it might be somebody's name. Uh, the evidence seems to point the other direction, though. Really, the idea here is true yoke fellow. Now, you think about a yoke. If you grew up on a farm, maybe you've seen this, where this big wooden yoke would be placed on the neck of oxen. You don't see it much now because we have tractors and things, but uh, certainly you'll see it in Amish country, you know, where they'll yoke animals together to plow fields. And this big wooden beam across their necks is to keep them together, to keep them on the same path so that one's not going this way and one's not going this way. They're, they're yoked together at the neck. It's, by the way, this term, yoke fellow, is the same one that Jesus uses for marriage. 
two people are yoked together in harmony with one another, keeping in step with one another. He's talking to this man who apparently, or I say man, it actually could be a, a plural noun. It could refer to more than one person here, true companions. Um, nevertheless, these were ones whom Paul saw as being on the same path as he is. Now, some people have suggested it was Luke. Some have said it might be Epaphroditus. There's other suggestions as well. My guess is that it was probably addressed to the elders and deacons of this church. That he's saying to the, even the church leadership here, listen, help these people. In fact, if you go back to chapter 1, verse 1, the letter itself is addressed to the church of Philippi and the elders and deacons there. So certainly this message is for them. True companion, help these women, he says. Help them resolve their differences. Don't just choose sides, which often happens, but help them work it out. I love what Stephen Davey writes at this point about this passage. He says, when, conflict ari- when conflicts arise, the church body isn't called to take sides, but to untangle the issue. He says, get to untangling. I urge you also, true companion, help these women. Help them work through this problem. There's a reason why in world conflicts, peace treaties are often made and drafted in neutral countries. Switzerland has always been a popular place for peace treaties to be drawn up because the two sides, the two warring parties, nations, will come together and there'll be a neutral place to meet. For instance, we think of... uh, more recent days, uh, like the Camp David Accords, for instance, in the 90s. Israel and Palestine were brought together in the United States, and the U.S. was sort of acting as intermediary, this mediator between these two warring factions. Sometimes that's what we need, especially when believers can be stubborn and hard-headed. I think we ought to welcome mediation. If we want to get along in God's church, this is a part of that picture. And isn't it so appropriate that Jesus himself is our mediator who as our intercessor stands between us and God who beseeches the Lord on our behalf. So in a way, when we recognize and welcome mediation, that's what Jesus has done for us. Third, or excuse me, fourth principle, though, is that we should get focused on the gospel. Get focused on the gospel. Conflict and disagreement between believers usually stems from things that don't matter so much. I know they feel like they matter sometimes, but when we get focused on the gospel and realize the mission that we're all to be about, which is reaching this world and sharing the good news of Christ, making disciples, it can have a way of putting our conflicts and disagreements into perspective. Look at the end of verse 3. It says, I urge you, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. So Paul reminds these two women of their service in the gospel and their indebtedness to the gospel. So what unites us? Well, serving in the gospel unites us. Serving in the gospel unites us. Paul talks about these two women who labored with me in the gospel. These were not people who just sat on the sidelines and complained about things. They, were, they had served alongside Paul. Now, that doesn't mean that they were apostles or prophets or preachers or anything like that. In fact, Paul has said to this Philippian church, 
strive together for the gospel in, in chapter 1, verse 27. So laboring in the gospel is every member ministry. It is all of us. It's not just the preacher or apostle or prophet. It's all. And these ladies had done that. They had labored with Paul. It's the Greek word synergos, where we get the word synergy. They had synergy with Paul. They were laboring right there along with him. They had gotten, at one point in their lives, excited about serving in the gospel. And now that seems to have been set to the side because this conflict has disrupted even their fellowship. Now, he says here, and Paul is basically reminding these two ladies, you know, remember when you used to be united in sharing the gospel? Remember when you labored with me in that? And now you've let some petty dispute disrupt the fellowship. You need to get back to remembering that service in the gospel that once united you. And then Paul also mentions here Clement. This is the only time we have mention of him. It's a masculine name. He also labored with these ladies and with Paul. Perhaps Clement was one of those true companions who was implored to help them. Otherwise, we don't really know much about him. He also mentions in the verse there, there were other fellow workers. So Paul is sort of telling them, listen, you used to labor with me in the gospel. You used to have a razor-sharp focus, and now you've kind of gotten off of that. There are the others, too, who served with us. The point to me seems fairly clear. We're, we're to be fighting on the same team, not fighting against one another. I was talking with a fellow a while back who used to be uh, an officer in the Navy. And back when he was a sailor, he, it was before he was a believer, he told me this. He said that when their ship would come into port, all the sailors would disembark from the boat and they would find the nearest bar. He said, we'd go into the bar. He said, if there was another ship in, in dock, Almost always, the sailors would get into fights and, and altercations with the sailors from the other ship. And if that happened, he said, you, were always on, you always covered the guys on your ship. And those guys on the other ship, you know, they were the enemy. He said, that was unless there were army guys in the, in the port. He said, and then it didn't matter. If you were a sailor, you were against the army guys. It didn't matter which ship they were on. You always joined your fellow sailors. And the same with Marines and Air Force. And he said, oh, that was unless we were in a foreign port. And then he said, if we got in a fight with, like, the French or British soldiers, he said, it didn't matter what branch you were in, you were always with your fellow Americans. And see, what I feel like in this church and in this situation is you've got sailor against sailor fighting one ship against another. And Paul's saying, look, we're to be united around the gospel, this common mission we have. We're not on two different teams. We need to realize what this is all about. There's unity in serving in the gospel, but also there's also unity to be found in sharing in the gospel. Sharing in the gospel unites us. Notice what it says at the end of verse 3. He mentions that they've labored together in this, whose names are in the book of life. Not only were they involved in sharing it, they were sisters. Born again into this new life in Christ, their names were written down in heaven. That ought to unite us, not divide us. Why are we fighting with those whom we're going to spend eternity with? Think about that. If, if we're not going to get along here, what are you planning on doing for eternity? Because you're going to be with that person. Well, truth is, we should learn to 
get along now. We share in this wonderful gift. He, he says it this way in the verse, whose names are in the book of life. Isn't that a wonderful expression? You know what? If you're a believer today, your name is written in the book of life. I have absolute confidence, not in myself, but I have confidence in the Lord that if you were to open up the book of life, there's my name. Again, it's all of God's grace. I certainly didn't earn my place in that book. I don't deserve to be there by any means. But my name is there because in God's grace, he saved me. And I hope that's true for you. I think one of the saddest things I can think of, and, and obviously I don't know exactly how it will all play out, but I imagine someone arriving at heaven's gate and they say, well, check in the books. And the angel, whoever is there, you know, says, listen, your name is not in the book. I'm sorry. No, wait a second. No, I was a pretty good person. You know, I, I, I went to church. Uh, my, I was in Sunday school. My, my grandma was a Sunday school teacher. Uh, you know, I, I tried to do good. I served in this way and that way. There's only one way to have your name written in the book, to trust in Christ, that you would ask him to forgive your sins and believe on God the Son. That's the only way to have your name written in the book. Have you ever been in that awkward situation where you thought you made a reservation, maybe at a hotel or at a restaurant, and you get there and they say, hmm, sorry, we can't find you. That's a terrible feeling, but it's far worse to arrive at heaven to find out, no, we don't know you. We don't have your name. See, what, what unites us is this common faith. We're going to spend eternity together. And here was Yodia and Syntyche who could hardly even look at each other. But they were going to share heaven's glory together. So settle those differences here. Now get focused on the gospel. Fifth principle. If we're going to get along in God's house, we ought to rejoice together. Now verse 4 kind of shifts a little bit. It goes from this particular scenario of these two ladies who are struggling to more general instruction. Paul is kind of speaking now to the whole church, some general truths, general principles that ought to be true of them because of the message of Philippians that he has done so far, that he has taught through. And it's not directly tied to the conflict between these two women, but I think it still gives us some guidelines on how to get along in God's house. Notice what it says, verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. A lot of people feel that Philippians, the main theme is joy. And there's certainly a lot of good reasons for thinking that. And they would oftentimes point to this verse as being sort of the key verse. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. That theme of joy kind of climaxes here in the book. And that joy or rejoicing is a deep-seated response to God's goodness and grace to us. I mean, that's what it means to rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in what he's done. Rejoice in what he is doing. Rejoice in who he is. Remember, Paul is writing from prison when he, he pins this letter. It's not like he's looking around and everything's wonderful and, man, just, I just want to rejoice. I can hardly help it. He's writing from a Roman imprisonment. He's in chains. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. So joy is not tied to circumstances. But what does this have to do with getting along? Well, notice the word always in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And then for emphasis, he adds it again. 
Again, I say rejoice. So are we really supposed to rejoice always when we're persecuted? Well, rejoice that we are not the persecutors. When we suffer, well, rejoice that your suffering will eventually give way to glory. When we lose, rejoice that in Christ we are more than conquerors. When we're falsely accused, rejoice that the spirit of truth is in us and we know the Father. See, our our rejoicing is not tied to circumstances. It's to be always rejoicing. What about two people who are in conflict with one another? Are we supposed to rejoice about that? Well, I think that's part of moving past that problem, is learning to rejoice together in the gospel. Rejoice always. Having just mentioned this difficult impasse in the church, Paul says rejoice always. Maybe this conflict had kind of stifled the joy of the Philippian church in a way. You know, no one likes to rejoice when people aren't getting along. Paul says it's time to get back to rejoicing. Finally, though, I want to point this last one out. If we desire to get along in God's house, we must be reasonable. Be reasonable. That's a lot of fights are started by people who are completely unreasonable, right? They want only their way. They're not interested in getting along. Look at verse 5. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Again, this is another general principle for the whole church. But I think it also applies in this conflict that these two ladies are facing. Uh, It really applies in a lot of situations, but I want to take it from that perspective. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The word gentleness here is challenging to translate because it could imply several different things, and any of them would actually fit in this context. The general idea of the word gentle here is to be fitting or suitable. Uh, It's someone who's willing to yield to others and doesn't always insist on getting his own way. J.B. Lightfoot once wrote, this word is the opposite of the spirit of contention and self-seeking. So, in other words, if you want to be a person who does not stir up conflict, be this. Be gentle. But some translations render it reasonable. And again, that is an actually pretty good translation. Basically, it means an unselfish willingness to yield to others. Unselfish willingness to yield to others. They're to be reasonable. Instead of always having to be right, always having to get my way, always, you know, never capable of seeing something from somebody else's perspective, not able to think of anybody else's interest but my own, the person who is unreasonable is constantly making a big deal out of something that shouldn't be a big deal at all. So Paul then answers and says, we should be reasonable and let that be known to all men. People ought to say of us, they're a reasonable person. They're not somebody who just stirs up conflict just for the sake of conflict. They're not somebody who insists on always being right. They yield to others. Why? He explains in the rest of the verse. Let your gentleness be known to all people, for the Lord is at hand. It's an explanation here. Because the Lord is at hand. Now that phrase could mean two things. It either means the Lord is at hand right now. He's close to us, and so therefore be reasonable because... The Lord is is here amongst us. Or it could mean his coming is near. Paul uses the term both ways in his letters. 
Here, I think it probably refers to his coming. In other words, be reasonable because the Lord's coming back. I mean, wouldn't it be a shame if here we are bickering with one another, insisting on our own way, acting completely unchristlike, and Jesus shows up? Realize that his coming is soon. It'd be pretty embarrassing to be occupied with things that didn't really matter, squabbling over things. So you want to get along in God's church? Well, be reasonable. I think a lot of church conflicts and arguments stem from somebody being unreasonable, not listening to others, insisting on their own way, always having to have it their own way. You know, I found there are two things that you really cannot reason with. Animals and small children that try as you may to convince them of the unreasonableness of their ways, they just don't seem to get it. Well, I dare say that sometimes we act like children when we unreasonably get stuck on one thing, and it's got to be that way, and I'm going to fight you tooth and nail on it. And in the end, it's not even something that really matters to begin with. Getting along in God's house is not always easy to do, but I think with the right principles, the right mindset, we can and we must do it. I think these principles guide us in the right direction. Come together, think like Jesus, welcome mediation, get focused on the gospel, rejoice together, and be reasonable. Let me add a few more things, not by way of exposition, but just application. Just a few thoughts to add to this before we close. Always be ready to offer forgiveness. It doesn't really come up in this passage, but it's an important element here that when wrong is done, we ought to be quick to offer forgiveness or ask for forgiveness when we are at fault. We ought also to listen carefully to others. Rather than always having the last word, always speaking up, always speaking our mind, listen to others. And then finally, be gracious. Be gracious when you deal with others. After all, we've been shown much grace. Should we not show much grace? Well, there's more we could add, but I just hope that we're not carried away by pettiness and division. We don't want to end up like Cope and Marsh, fighting it out till our dying day over something so stupid and insignificant. A director of a missions agency visited churches all over the world spoken at dozens and hundreds probably of churches. He was once asked about his observations. You know, what have, what have you noticed being out in so many different churches and so many different kinds of churches? He replied this way, to see a church at peace is an oasis in the desert. It's a wonderful little thought. Oasis in the desert, that little place of refreshment, the one bright shining diamond in a sea of sand. I wonder if people would say, you know, that church is an oasis in the desert. They live at peace with one another, in harmony together. Let that be evident to all men.